I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 254 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today we have a very special episode of Rendering Unconscious, a roundtable discussion about the state of psychoanalysis with Mary Kim Brewster, Carter Carter, Molly Merson, Anne Pellegrini, Avi Sakatapulu, Lara Shiha, and Stephen Shiha. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl, where we do post exclusive content every week. We've also started a Substack where we also post weekly exclusive content at vanessa23carl.substack.com. So choose whichever platform you prefer. Thank you so very much for your support. Rendering Unconscious Podcast is a passion project. I do everything myself. Someone recently contacted me. And they were surprised to learn that I do all the editing, recording, posting, uh, website, everything I run on my own. I have no backing from anyone. I don't accept any money from advertisers or anything. I only uh, get support from our Patreon community and now our Substack community. So thank you so much for your support. If you've enjoyed Rendering Unconscious over the years, it would be great for you to sign up. It really makes me feel good to see that people appreciate the podcast and want to support us here, want to support me here, I should say. Links to everything can be found at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. As with most episodes of Rendering Unconscious Podcast, there is a video of this discussion at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Do you want to start, Mary? I'll start. Um, you know, it's been three months since the conference, so we've had kind of a lot of time to absorb it, but we haven't really had time to really talk about what we're absorbing. Um, but I was I was going back to what when Carter and I in the very beginning were thinking about what we wanted this to be, what we what our ideas about the conference that we wanted to build and, and attend would look like. And you know, I think our our idea at the heart of it, um, we were intending to do a very, um, um, a psychoanalytic, a psychological, a scholarly examination of um, how multiple forms of oppression around gender, race, ability, um, are structured into our field. And that was really our intention to really look at how this is is really structured into our field. Um, you know, and we know from clinicians, as as clinicians, we know as clinicians that um, that all forms of stress, okay, um, and um, affect our inter- our internal lives, and that is so foundational to psychoanalysis, to psychoanalytic thinking. You know, this is just basic one hundred and one. So to be able to um, really look at that, to look at how um, 
uh, forms of oppression ex exacerbates any form of mental illness, psychological distress that our, our patients are coming to treat, you know, is sort of um, basically foundational to our work. So, um, you know, and we know that um, any kind of, of racism, sexism, um, any kind of oppression affects our mental health, affects how, how we approach any kind of um, any kind of life event and just exacerbates, exacerbates this. So this is something just so foundational that we were trying to let people know that this is how we understand it. Now, our steering committee that we assembled um, has experienced this form of oppression. So we were speaking from positions of knowing what we're talking about, okay? And um, knowing that this is for real and needs to be addressed and taken seriously. Um, and we really believe that until we really work to dismantle the structures of oppression within our field, within psychoanalysis, within psychoanalytic psychology, within um, we, unless we do this, we, we are literally placing the next generation at risk. The next generation of analysts, of um, psychoanalytically informed psychologists, we're placing social workers, we're placing them at risk, okay? And we're placing them at risk directly um, by replicating um, the discriminatory, discriminatory practices that exist in our field. You know, and Carter, you have a lot to say about that from your study. You know, if we're just if we're just passing that down to the next generation, we're putting them at risk, but also indirectly, we're we're placing the next generation at risk because us as teachers, as supervisors, as clinicians, if we are experiencing, you know, this kind of stress and really practicing under these conditions, that's not good. That's not good for the next generation. If we're the mothers and fathers or what, whatever, you know, <laughs> if we are in charge of bringing up these minds, we can't be, you know, we can't be suffering like this. So that's the indirect, that's sort of like, um, um, you know, I'm thinking about, being in a, a toxic prenatal, you know, um, you know, when, when the biological mother is, you know, under a tremendous amount of stress, we know this affects the outcome of the next generation. So that's what I'm thinking about. It's not just for us in the here and now. It's crucial that we do this for the field. Yeah. So anyway, in terms of um, what happened, I think we made a, a really good faith effort, and I think we accomplished a lot. I think we accomplished a lot. And um, I just have one more to say, one more thing to say, and then I'll, um, but the best moment for me um, on every single level as a human being, as a clinician, as, as a person in the division was a moment um, when we had a really wonderful audio, a tech person who sat in the main room for three days watching our process. 
And it was Friday afternoon and it was his last shift. He was going to be away for the week and so he wouldn't be there for the last day. He had seen, um, you know, Anne, you know, you with Jeff, he had seen you, 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 Stephen with David, he had seen all of us do our thing. He stopped and spoke to the audience and said, I have been so moved by what you are doing here. What you are doing is so important. I have never been at a conference like this before. I've had to leave the room because I've been in tears to come back. And whatever you do, please know, keep doing what you're doing. Okay. I mean, yeah. yeah, I can't say that I've ever felt like that at a conference. <laughs> like we had a conference before, <laughs> that's for sure. And I heard from so many different people. What an amazing space you created. Um, I heard it from everywhere. That's why I had to write you and be like, we have to talk about this, you know. Carter, do you want to say something? I second all of that. Um, and, and I I also like, in a funny way, like not, nothing we're talking about should be that controversial. I don't think actually what we're driving at is terribly controversial in other clinical fields to say nothing of like other like fields of inquiry like in the humanities and beyond but this kind of stuff like what you were saying mary about not wanting not wanting the next kind of generation of people in our profession to be subject to what we were that apparently is a controversial enough statement that it got a v and an booted yeah. from the ijp yeah. which is why they had to write their book in the fucking first place yeah um, and, and I, I guess that that to me is the the frontier of this, right? Is like we're seeing a lot of blowback. And I yeah. think the blowback is, you know, not internal to our field entirely, right? Like we're in the eye of a storm. Um and you know, yeah, part part of what part of what I'm hoping that we can think about we're looking here and in general is like how do we handle that? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's it's not something I think are certainly not something I'm accustomed to. Um, it's not something I think our field is accustomed to, to be subject to this kind of, you know, uh, outside scrutiny and pressure and propaganda and disinformation and, you know, yeah. malice. Um, so, and I, I don't think we have much of an immune response to it. So like we're doing this work, like any good psychoanalytic work, it's stirring up a lot for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think... Yeah, like there's all kinds of good consequences of that that we're like seeing and benefiting from. And then there's also a lot of kind of scary consequences of that. And I'm mm -hmm. interested in like, how do we, you know, how do we capitalize upon the good ones and how do we handle the scary ones? And and I'll just say as the, you know, I'm speaking here, yes, as the, the president of the division for which you did the conference and I couldn't be more proud and my heart felt like it was bursting at so many times partially because this is the first time we were all back together in person and there's a whole different layer to that and folks sort of some people meeting for the first time in that conference that have created solidarity over the course of several years online at a time when our world is really asking for that and really people are craving connections but also people who want to create the world it, the same world that they want to live in together, right? Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't also note that 
not only did marrying Carter and, and their uh, team gift us this space, like the queerest, brownest, blackest, coolest space that I have been in. And people were really going around and like really talking about that and the vibrant aspects of that. That's not without pain, by the way. I think people were very acutely aware of the multiple layers of thinking and theorizing in in vivo, right? Doing sort of really important psychoanalytic work in the process of that, but also creating life together. That part of the controversy you're talking about, Carter, and then Mary, what you're saying, what your intention was, is that this whole process has been mired in those oppressive processes. And I need to name that because you two as folks of color also were at the receiving end of so much racism, so much misogyny, so much pushback. And I think that's really important for us to contend with, like the labor that folks do. And we do this because, like you were saying, Mary, we feel it's important. In fact, I feel like it's dire. There's nothing else I can be doing (laughs) other than trying to push through and enact and sort of dismantle and reignite spaces that are hospitable to living, which includes the division. This was part of my sort of presidential speech, but how do you create a hospitable space for life, right? Um, but but this is what's involved in that. Like you all did not go unscathed. I don't think any of us that are meeting here, and maybe this is partially why we're coming together to have this conversation of like, what are the, there are high costs to this. And we could sort of knowing each other know that we understand that the fight and the struggle might be worth those costs for all the reasons. And also it needs to be named that like this violence is being done. This is not outside. This is at our doorsteps. We're, we're right in the middle of it. This violence is happening actively. And your, your lead up to the conference was, you know, robust in those examples. You know, to, to just put a little detail on what you're saying, Lotto, like, you know, we were encouraged to get armed security yeah. because of the level of pushback we were getting. We ultimately ethically decided we weren't comfortable with that. And so we didn't do it. But we were we were being encouraged to hire like armed off duty NYPD officers to be present at this conference. Right. We had, uh, you know, right wing propaganda outfits paid for these like creepy derogatory like banners of Lada and Steven to be like put up on a on a van with a projector screen on the back and driven around the hotel for 16 hours. Show me the last time that happened at a psychoanalytic conference. We had right wing tabloids kind of trying to like buttonhole our members downstairs and like freedom of the press. They're welcome to be there, whatever. But like, it's not a normal thing to have happen. You know, we were having to worry about like, you know, who's going to be standing by the doors at Lotto's presidential address in case something somebody does something weird. Like we had Molly standing by the door because Molly is the strongest person in Division 39. <laughs> 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 lived up very- <laughs> um, but like, that's not you. That's not normal shit. You should have to worry about it at an academic meeting. Like, and, and you know, I think that there might be people who are like, "Well, that was paranoid and weird." But like, I mean, this is also stuff we were being advised to do by people who aren't within our field, who were just like helping right. us organize this meeting, yeah. who do this kind of stuff all the time. Like, the level of blowback. You know, most people who put together a psychoanalytic conference don't like suffer people calling them book burners on the internet. <laughs> 
or death threats. Which is the least of it, frankly, right? I mean, it's, it's like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's emblematic of what minoritized people, the, their life on a daily basis, just trying to put one foot in front of the other to, to get educated, to, you know, to move through the world, to walk down the street. You know, that's just emblematic. Yeah. I think the part that, that doesn't, the part that's, the part that still surprised me is like, I don't, I don't, you know, and maybe you all have thoughts on this. Why? Why is this, you know, what we're trying to do is really be inclusive, to broaden, to bring people in, to do, um, to address parts of the mind that probably haven't been, you know, kind of theorized in the past, to look at race and how it's internalized and how it, the subjective experience of it and, and what happens in the social. You know, why is that? Why are people having such cows about that? Literally. Literally. I wonder, I, I, some of me just doesn't doesn't get it. Why why the cow? I mean, I love cows, Carter. No, you know. But, yeah, I, my, my cow's about to walk in and look in the window, but it will be on the other side. But what is why is this so stimulating to put it in, have, a, in a neutral way oh and please yeah. yeah i mean one thought i'm having um is that it's not just about inclusion because if it's not simply about bringing in bodies and voices who haven't previously let's say been part of division 39 or part of other psychoanalytic organizations you know because other organizations are also have been roiled with controversy lately right it's mm -hmm. not simply about including more it's that People whose voices and, and subjectivities have been at the center of the field for decades are actually having to give something up. There, there's a decentering that's happening. It's not just you get to add and add and add and nothing gets shaken for those who've previously been dominant. It's actually people are not just being asked to sort of step back, who's, again, whose subjectivities have been at the center of psychoanalysis, but they're actually, they're not allowed to be at the center any longer. So I think that there's a, there's a, an, upset at the sense and actual experience of loss that some people are having. And this isn't just within psychoanalysis. Right. The larger cultural reactions against progress by people of color, by LGBTQ plus people, right? That's not just a reaction against inclusion. It's a reaction against the fact that the pie is not big enough to keep slicing it, to, you know, if we just keep slicing it and slicing it and slicing it, there's a reorganization of power that's happening. And that doesn't feel good to those whose position at the center has just felt been so utterly naturalized for a long, long time. I, I would add something to that. I, I think that what Anne is saying, kind of like I'm fully in agreement with that. But even on the level of our metapsychology, like the psychoanalysis that we have is not good enough for what we're trying to do. Mm. It just doesn't work. So we don't get to keep it. So if we love it, we have to be willing to let it die, if not to kill aspects of it, so that something else can emerge in its stead. So it is not just that there are certain subjects, um, as, as you were saying, Anne, that are now being um, decentered and kind of like to make room for different kinds of subjectivities. It's also that the, the psychoanalytic thinking that everybody, including some people of color and including some queer people and including some people whose othernesses have not been given space in our field. 
that psychoanalysis too is also under assault. So we see, we begin to see this thing, which to some, I, I suspect none in this virtual room, but to some in our field seems surprising, which is that there are many fronts to talk about racism, and even though I think that it disappear, uh, uh, applies to queerness as well, there are many varieties of racism, some of which look and understand themselves as anti-racist, and very varieties of queernesses. Right. And some of them are invested in the preservation of the status quo. They just want in, but without undoing anything. So part of what we've seen in in some of the recent upheavals in the field, we've also seen people of color take incredibly conservative positions. And we've seen white people and white anxieties take the place of, but so-and-so stated, and she's a woman of color, or he's a queer person, or he's a queer person of color, like that, that kind of like the trifecta of like, kind of like, um, so they hit all the identificatory positions through which we would expect something radical, and yet, some people can produce something extremely conservative. So I think we're also moving to a place where racial identification, racial kind of like how one reads racially, whether somebody's queer, whether somebody is a woman, these are no longer enough to do our work. We have to do more and better. And I think that that's threatening in a whole different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's part of the reason why there was a monumental meltdown when um, you all sent out, Carter and Mary sent out the alert for David and Stephen's uh, keynote on the dread of repair. Like what came from that, I think speaks to what you're saying, Avi, right? Is this sort of like that of all of a sudden the decentering that Anne's talking about, that it was right front row and center. And is it by chance also, yes, the identification piece is part of this because you have an Asian and an Arab, right? sort of be front on this that they're the face of it but of course that is not where right a, a progressive person or analyst might direct their attention because by and large folks know that that might not be the the sound entry point to be like <laughs> hey these are the faces of this what was interesting was what the content right even generated and like for us to think about what does that mean about the structural issues that we're really pushing out? What does that mean when now it's no longer a fringe issue, right? It's not Lara talking about this. It's all of us right now on this screen who have not been known to be shy, let's say, <laughs> now are saying we have a problem. That problem's here. There are actually larger things that it's not enough. Our, our psychoanalysis is, is not enough. Mm. I, I would add to that. It's not just that we're saying we have a problem. It's also that I, and this goes back to your question, Mary, we're also not willing anymore to be told that it's not a problem. Right. Um, even, and we're building something also for new generations that are coming who need to see also us protesting and being willing to lose things, being willing to injure relationships. I can't, kind of like I, I say this, whatever chance I get, we have to be willing to lose things, especially those of us who are white. Um, otherwise, if you're trying to preserve your status or your relationships or your standing, like that's like, you need to move aside. And if if you don't move aside, you, you will be moved aside. 
<laughs> and it also goes to the way that analysts are right trained or analytic formation and the problems that that has had historically. And maybe we need new ways of, uh, yeah, bringing up the next generation that doesn't include these psychoanalytic institutions. You know, if I, I, as the only non-clinician here, you know, it, um, I'm struck by a couple of things. Number one, um, the way in which people in psychoanalysis might think they are a field that is apart from society and also how it might not, they might see themselves as what's happening in psychoanalysis not reflect what's happening in society. So like, I think some of this isn't like as hard as we need to really make it, right? In as much as what everyone's basically saying, like psychoanalysis is a production of material conditions created over the past century, right? And as such, it reproduces certain things, right? That's what its job is to do, right? It produces and reproduces certain things. And I think what's, I, you know, I hear, you know, there's a, this conversation, you know, whether we should kill or not kill or whether psychonosis is useful or not useful. It just seems to me that there are, uh, it's an ideological field, right? And uh, Faluke Taylor says, you know, if we see this as a field, it has to be, it is one that is both contains the ruley and the unruly, right? And so that's kind of that dialectic that's being produced. And it has always, so psychoanalysis has always opened up doors that are threatening, but always also wants to manage that. It has always wanted to manage its excess, its threat, its what's too much, you know? Um, and I think that's what is happening now is that that is becoming made apparent. Um, and the, where psychoanalysis can go now is to lean into the cellular necrosis, right? Rather than thinking about kill or not kill, but thinking about what is actually just rotten uh, because maybe it's never worked. But or maybe it has worked when white supremacy was went unchallenged, mm -hmm. right? And cis heteronormativity went unchallenged. Or do we think actually about some of the ethos, some of the, what psychoanalysis might actually import into this world, sort of dynamic processes in which we can actually think into and think with the unruly? Can we ride the unruly rather than try to be contained by, uh, you know, contain it? Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's and that's an incredibly threatening thing, because, of course, that is basically we're asking folks in the end to truly destabilize, mm -hmm. you know, cis heteronormativity, white supremacy, American empire, you know, settler colonialism, whatever. So mm -hmm. I mean, that's an over simple reading. <laughs> I've never known you to be over simple. Crude Marxist. <laughs> I can say something very over simple. I'm thinking that we should be thinking rather, rather than about why people are having cows, we should be thinking about how to make how to make a calf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or fat cows to just sit in the middle and be like, I'm not fucking moving. <laughs> What do cows do? Carter can tell us. Don't remind me. It's just making my life impossible. 
I have a question. Um, it's, it's a. It's not. A, it's not a rhetorical question. It's a genuine question. Uh, it's. It's to you, uh, Stephen, but anyone who wants to jump in. Like I'm thinking what you were saying about like something that is necrotic, and I. I wonder about that. Is it necrotic? It feels very alive to me. It feels literally pulsating, with energies of resistance. Um, resistance to the struggles that we're all allied to. Uh, and we saw in another organization, not in Division 39, kind of like the ways in which it kind of like came back kind of like venomously alive to, to cause harm, lasting harm. Um, so my my worry about calling it necrotic is, is that it, it implies, I know that this is not how you think, but it could imply that something is already dead when in fact it's it's alive and kicking uh, and we have so much so much work to do to which we also and that's the other piece to think kind of like again psychoanalytically to which we will also have our own resistances like I have to push back against myself like when Anne and I were writing the book that um, Carter pointed uh, to the kind of like the, the footnote so when the IJP, went back on its decision to publish our paper and said they would not publish it contingent on us editing the work um, in a way that they would like. There were so many times that Anne and I looked at each other and were like, how do we push through this? Or when we anticipated the kinds of pushbacks that our arguments would meet, we looked at each other and we're like, what are we doing is dangerous. Like, do we have, what are the ethics of putting this kinds of arguments in, in the world right now, when kind of like arguments about the complexity of trans and queer becoming at a time that so much trans and queer life is under legislative and actual lived attack. Um, and we had to push back against our own efforts to conserve at least what is there, to not cause more damage, to not create more terror. Um, and kind of like, so I, I was just wondering about that. I'm curious about what everybody thinks about kind of like the ways that we also have to push back against our own fears and our own anxieties. Because one of the things that I hear so much from colleagues who are struggling with this is, but what, what about the pushback? What about the damage that might happen to us, to others? Uh, what are we opening up? Like, how do we also take that seriously without kind of like without um, backing off? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the ways that kind of power works too is that it makes people censor themselves, right? And this internal censorship process. And as analysts, you know, we try to help people recognize that uh, or give them space to start recognizing the ways they're kind of censoring or cutting off parts of themselves. And yeah, I mean, I have to check that all the time. I feel like that's a constant process of kind of learning and un unlearning socialization processes that have happened over a lifetime. Part of what I was hearing you saying about the, like recognizing that this is not exclusive. Right. This. Yeah. And I just want to clarify, you know, when I say sort of, you know, cellular necrosis, what I'm really thinking about, obviously I think, you know, the unruly is not right. The unruly is, is uh, fecund with good libidinal energies that are pushing us in all different directions. And um, 
what I was kind of saying is, and I'm trying to avoid crude language, but I guess I will. And I also don't want to like slip back into late Freud, which I hate, you know, Thanatos and Eros nonsense, right? <laughs> but, you know, um, people who want to conserve, let's call it psychoanalysis as we might understand it writ large institutionally, um, are purveyors, are sort of necromongers, right? They do purvey a certain form of livability that actually is always contingent on certain social deaths of other people, yeah. right? So they are, and, and that's, and, and fascists, that's what fascists want. You know, you might have a very, fa- a nice guy who's a fascist and he might pet his dog and be really good to his, his heteronormative reproductive family, but, you know, he basically wants someone else's death, mm-hmm. right? Um, what happens that when we can sort of reduce that to a sort of discursive ideological and sort of political trend within the structures of psychoanalysis, which all of you here are trying to dismantle or and rework to rebuild. That's kind of what I was thinking about in terms of. So I agree with you completely. I would I I when I'm talking, I'm just thinking about, you know, I think the I think the obviously the metaphor of old white man is ageist, you know, so we don't want to go into that sort of thing. But like, you know, Marx talks about zombies, right? And like capital is 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 this, is the is the living dead. And that's kind of what a lot of these, mm. these people in who are really trying to conserve something in psychoanalysis really are. They're kind mm-hmm. of the living dead. They're kind of, you know, they want to suck the life out of out of the living to for some sort of other sort of form of capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also activating that trope right, that I think we've talked about this before, we're all aware of the, you know, the martyr trope in our field. And I'm speaking particularly here, and I'm just going to, I mean, this is, this is public, right? And this is the, to to respond to Avi's, Martello agrees with this too, (laughs) Um, is to sort of say like, in, if we're talking about, let me just name it, this is, this is public. And part of what happens with these processes is also that things happen in the public with impunity. And then we manage and sort of have to like manage our language and sort of not own it. And so when I'm talking about the, the trope of martyrdom, I'm talking about what happened in the American Psychoanalytic Association, where the previous president resigned right? Presumably under pressure by those of us in the illiberal left, um, apparently whose leader is myself. Um, But, and then comes out in a Guardian article and says he did this, right? Because we needed a sacrificial lamb and that sacrificial lamb had to be a white man. And I'm saying this specifically because this sort of language is this discourse is being normalized and being given life to your point, Avi. I think that is where the ferociousness comes from is because if it's dead, if it is dead at one point, it becomes injected with life. When this discourse then becomes, is given a particular life. Mm -hmm. And my sense of this is like, what is that? Okay, so there's the trope of the white man. That is easy. That is low hanging fruit. <laughs> right. And for those of us, we can roll our eyes and be like, are you kidding me? Like, could you, could you be more direct with this? However, if I'm thinking psychoanalytically and I'm thinking about the affective plane on which that lands, 
that trope is also creating, if we're talking about like a Fanonian thing, it's the racist that creates the inferiorized. That statement also, as I read it, creates a voracious, right, mob mm-hmm. of brown, black, indigenous, queer folks that will not stop until we have the blood of only a white man. That has a life. Mm-hmm right? Where once it was dead, now it's infused with life. And now we're seeing the after effects of that is people now sort of this is becoming like a mainstream truth, right? If it's spoken, it becomes truth. It's spoken enough times, it becomes a discourse. And this is what we're, I think, up against. So in the response to like, what keeps us checking our own fear that comes with the breathing into life of that zombie or or that new discourse. For me, it's what was consistently being asked of me to give up. A refusal, my refusal, my standing in, in sort of indignation at the oppressive forces that were asking me to give up what makes me thrive, what gives me life. Mm-hmm. That refusal is what allows me to sort of check every time to sort of that those political refusals are life-giving and to understand that what people are asking me to do is give up my life is give up those spaces those 700 people that came and made life together at division 39 is because we were checking constantly our fears but yeah. the demand will always be give that up, give that up. It's never enough. It's never enough. I've done that in my life before. It was never enough. Stay quiet for a year. Do you think that was enough? I was the aggressive, silent one. <laughs> and it's like, and this is where sort of going back to Audre Lorde and the anger is that when you're afraid to speak, speak anyway. Right? I, I think that's what keeps me sort of, and with the idea that it's literally life that's pulsing through me, because this, I've said this before, it's not a side gig. This is about the life and the world that I want to live in, that I want to bequeath to the people after me, that I want to live in with you all together, right? Not as a far off thing, as a reality. And I can't do that if I'm cutting parts of my myself off. Well, who's going to follow that? <laughs> I wanted to actually pick up on the, the, the martyrology that you just referred to, Lada, because it is actually a discourse. I mean, numerous religious traditions have martyrologies, but the American Psychoanalytic Association is American in the sense of U.S. This means we're talking about Christian martyrologies. And here I'm thinking with the work of my colleague Elizabeth Castelli and her work in the persecuted church. And one of the things we're hearing is that conservative uh, religious organizations and individuals. Here we're talking about a particular kind of evangelical Christianity because not the all evangelical Christians are politically conservative, it's important to say, but there's a particular strain of evangelical Christianity and some conservative Catholicism as well, which understand Christians to be the, the most persecuted minority of them all. And so, and this isn't about the religious affiliation of the person, the former president of APSA. In the US context, to refer to the sacrificial lamb and a martyrology is necessarily to speak into a discourse of Christian majoritarianism. On Good Friday. On a Good Friday indeed, right? Um, So, I mean, there's something, and this is how this language within a psychoanalytic conversation is of course pulling on the energies from the broader culture. And then it's injecting its own energies back into that broader culture, right? We've got this feedback loop. 
But you know, so much of what we're seeing in terms of the rise of fascisms internationally are, are the various versions of Christian nationalisms, right, which take up a specific inflection depending upon the national context. I mean, there are also, you know, sort of um, Islamic nationalisms, there are Hindu nationalisms, right? But uh, I'm particularly interested as someone who studied Christianity for a long time in Christian nationalism. And we can hear that even. We, and it's, again, so this isn't about the intention of the speaker. It's about the discursive stream into which that speaker is uttering his words. And this is why it becomes powerful because it's, it already has a legibility within the stream. Mm -hmm. And then it builds power because of that. It amplifies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing to this thing. Is, I, I, I remember, like, what he said in his resignation letter, because I was just quoting it for an article. He, he said it was a, he, he was a human sacrifice, right? And the, like, immense... Oh, like Orientalist bullshit of that, right? The idea that we're all there with spears, like, oh, la, 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 right? Like, you know, that's nuts. But it's also, <laughs> it's like, you know, these discourses overlap. It's, it gets so complicated to talk about this. And I can often just feel like, you know, I don't know if anyone else watches It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but like Charlie with the red string with Pepe Silvia, like you're like, you know, drawing all these crazy connections on your cork board. <laughs> but like one, you know, it, we're in the U.S. and so there's this Christian idiom, but I think also psychoanalysis is traditionally a Jewish profession, right? And like, I'm going to say, because of, you know, I'm conditioned into these self-defensive maneuvers. Hi, I'm Carter. I'm also Jewish. Greetings. Um <laughs> I think that there's this parallel process that happens within psychoanalysis where with where like I think for a long time, like American Jews of European descent felt like they had this thing that was their thing, right? And like there any challenge to it sort of comes with this tenor of like, can't you just let us have our thing? Right. And I think that that's where you begin to get a parallel process around Zionist anxieties, right? This idea of this is just our one thing, right? And the problem, of course, is like the world is multiracial and multicultural, and like you don't like you don't get to say only one kind of people belong. You don't own that thing, right? And like, especially the, when that thing belonged to somebody else before. Yeah, <laughs> let's not right? let's not forget that little piece. Here, here, uh, and you know the the crazy thing I see is like you know the audience for this stuff that you know uh, the. There's this thing happening right now, and Vanessa, this might be another word you need to help me sound more cogent on the recording, but like uh, th these critics in psychoanalysis who are trying to reinstate the status quo, right? Some of their audience is internal, right? But a lot of the audience actually is external, right? The, they're speaking to a broader right-wing audience, right? Through this kind of like universe of right-wing media, like blogs, like our conference was written about in the Wall Street Journal editorial page. When's the last time that happened at about a psychoanalytic meeting, right? And there's an effort to caricature us and people like us uh, as these the kind of woke mob, right? That is trying to like basically destroy everything in, in academia and medicine and undermine Western civilization. Um, and that all of that advances like a specific fascist agenda, right? Like, it's not a coincidence that the three things that we get totally jammed up about in, in psychoanalysis are one, critiques of whiteness, of the kind that, you know, Molly's work entails, of the kind that got, you know, Don Moss and Derek Hook, like, you know, plastered all over right wing media. 
Two, it's Palestine, right? And imputations of anti-Semitism, right? These issues that come up around Lada and other people, but most, you know, like uh, where that's that's kind of like two. And then three is this piece about you know trans identity and trans affirming care, which is where people like Avi and I, like the all of these things are major like major propaganda points for you know, right-wing fascist disinformation agitation in the U.S., right? And I think that what we see happening is our kind of internal, like, internecine bullshit that's happening in psychoanalysis is very convenient for fascists in various ways, right? And so kind of more right-wing people within psychoanalysis can capitalize on that to, like, entrench their position within the profession. But then there's also this way in which, like, we're getting co-opted into this larger like campaign of disinformation and propaganda that is like terrifying to me, frankly. And it seems like something that is not enough on the radar of our, of our profession that this is happening. Can I ask a question to all of you as a non-clinician? Because I agree with you completely, Carter. I mean, I'm shocked that, you know, the sort of third rate, you know, um, third-rate sort of Jordan Peterson pseudo um, pseudo clinicians who are like disbarred in their countries, you know, and or wherever they practice, or these sort of losers who are like have no status in the field, or they're washed up. These sort of deadbeat, washed up people who are just caping for Israel, kind of are are given a platform within psychoanalysis, and really, as you said, sort of like mainstreaming sort of fascist discourses. But maybe you could also help me think through how psychoanalysis actually is seen as a liberal discourse, right? It's also one that's always sort of pride, you know, prided uh, <laughs> itself um, on properly knowing how to, again, um, manage the unruly, right? By bringing people in, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think I agree with you 100%, but I think it's really scary is how so many, so much of the liberal tradition and liberals themselves, people who pride themselves on being progressive, are really so sit so comfortably with the, these these fascist discourses that are being mainstreamed. So you can help me because I mean, this is something I think I, I, I'm struggling through right now. I mean, Actually, I, I, Carter, did you want to say something? Well, I'd, I'd rather hear you talk. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> there, there's the like uh, see this is this is why i'm not a proper analyst i'm not i'm not i always will lose in the contest of who's going to be silent um but like one it's totally standard for right-wing propagandists to call themselves liberals in the u.s right that's part of how they pretend that they're not not fascist propagandists is they call themselves liberals and secular humanists now like they're bullshitting Right. But that's the language they use to legitimate themselves to a wider audience. Right. They tend to do this move where they say, I am a liberal or I was a liberal until dot, dot, dot. Right. And you see a lot of the propagandists who are standing right outside of psychoanalysis, lobbing shit in at us. That's the move that they do. But I also think that like part. You know, psychoanalysts think of themselves as as liberal and perhaps they are, but like. The, our profession has been authoritarian from the get, right? And like to become a part of this subculture, you have to buy in to an authoritarian kind of intellectual, institutional, and cultural environment, right? That is organized around 
basically the dictates of charismatic personalities where standards of evidence in our field are degraded to the point of being almost non-existent. You know, Avi, I think that this connects to something you were saying earlier that like, you're just not allowed to say that some of our theory is wrong. Like the idea that like, that's like not a permissible statement in a lot of psychoanalytic contexts, right? That every single kind of like evolution of our theory is treated like an off ramp you're allowed to take. Like when you're in analytic training and you learn about Freud, like you're just authorized to be a like an unreconstructed 1901 Freudian, right? And that's like a thing you're allowed to be and charge money for, right? Ditto, ego psychology, object relations, self psychology. Every single one of these things isn't just like an intellectual movement that has its utility that then gets moved on from. It's like a destination you're allowed to arrive at and like hang your shingle at and make money from. And so in that environment, you're kind of not allowed to criticize anybody who's doing this like retrograde bullshit because the whole profession like has arrived at this kind of pact that we call theoretical pluralism where we say, well, we're really not going to fight about our differences, right? Leaving aside it's fully 100% academics jobs to fight about our, literally all we're supposed to do is fight about our differences because we're trying to figure out what's actually true. And so I, I think that that's a lot of this, right? That we're, this profession, like, ha has essentially abandoned any effort to establish what is and isn't true or legit, because we have a kind of guild interest in everybody continuing to like be here and make money, and that that kind of capitalist imperative for everybody to be allowed to have their small businesses that they want to have has like totally superseded any effort to like grow or figure out what's true or like develop any kind of immunity to like fascist disinformation. All right, I'm gonna jump in. What I, what I have to say is actually very connected to some of what you're saying, Carter, but, but I would start from a different point. Um, like you were asking Stephen, like, you know, psychoanalysis has this, kind of like is, is about managing the unruly. And I would say, actually, this is not what psychoanalysis is. This is the story that psychoanalysis has about itself that our work is to manage the unruly. In fact, if anything, the whole teaching of psychoanalysis is that there are forces that you do not control. Like in ego psychology, the idea is, and then you sit on top of them and you like put them down and you make sure that none of them come up because if not, you have not adapted well, which produces a certain kind of subject, which is white and hetero, hetero procreative and so on and so forth. But what I would say is that kind of like part of how that works is with this fetishization of dialogue that we have, right? Like this is what you were talking about, kind of like Carter, when you were talking about kind of like the, this notion of like theoretical pluralism, where if you have, if you take a stand, if you are willing to go after ideas, then you're aggressive. And kind of like our role here is to critique things, but to critique them in a toothless way. And to critique them in a way that actually has no consequence and it costs nothing to anybody. And we all get to keep our little toys that we came into the, the playroom with. And everybody walks back out with the same toys they went in. That we just had an experience of like going back and forth, but really nothing changes. And this is not just how things work. This is how psychoanalysis has tools to ensure that things are kept this way. And the tools that psychoanalysis has to ensure that are ideas like, and many of you have spoken up around this, around the third, around repair, kudos to the panel on division 39, around kind of like the, kind of like missing the, the contributions of American um, 
exceptionalism and American uh, kind of like Christian uh, nationalism, which Anne was talking about uh, at the conference, on how these are actually very tightly bound together with repair, with uh, the, 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 the fantasy that there's a way to be in relation and disagree without somebody's feelings getting hurt, like our narcissism getting hurt. Like how else are we going to debate and how else are we going to kind of like deal with the unruly um, not to manage it, but actually to give it space. So when you were talking earlier, Lara, about things giving you life, this is what this is what life is about. Life is about the unruly, not about the management of the unruly. And that's what psychoanalysts get wrong because what we do politically with psychoanalysis is not the same thing as what you do in the clinic. Like there, there are differences with sitting with one patient where kind of like, you tend to narcissism differently. You don't, you don't just coddle it, but you tend to it differently than you might in a group. And there are differences, important distinctions to be made and to be preserved and fought for between clinical psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis as a thinking tool. Mm-hmm. Molly, I'm thinking here of the time that you wrote your whiteness paper. And you can go anywhere, but I just immediately thought about the over-editing of that <laughs> whiteness paper and how this ties into it. And then also, you know, Vanessa Molly and I have an ongoing conversation constantly. And it's always like, you know, your West Coast and this idea of liberalism and psychoanalysis being so progressive, especially in the place where you live. And then us also hitting the wall of like what that that actually looks like or doesn't look like. Well, and thank you for the call-in, Lara. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm listening to all of you speak and just like sitting from a position. I think I might be the only person who's a candidate here right now. And so I'm I'm sitting with that lens um, and that filter and thinking about sort of being in, you know, kind of like Fred Moten, like in but not of, you know, like trying to kind of figure out my way through Um and how this sort of, I mean, my institute is, is, you know, advertises itself as a pluralist institute. And so I'm thinking about this, like, toothlessness of, of dialogue in that particular way. Um, but there actually are teeth. And I'm just aware of, like, the people who are the ones who get bit are also the ones who are holding the teeth that aren't necessarily even theirs, right? It's like there's this way that um, in these kind of positions of dialogue, especially as a candidate with all of the different sort of authorities and authorizations that are swimming around, um, the notion of speaking up is uh, always a dangerous one, but then to not speak up is also dangerous. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, um, who gets sort of named as the one who's the aggressor. And it's usually the person who's, who can't actually be in that space without either without speaking or without feeling hurt or wounded by, uh, the lack of it, of speaking. So this kind of, I mean, my sort of, um, location as you're talking about in the bay area and like who we imagine is here there is um (laughs) there's a grocery store here uh 
called Berkeley Bowl. And there's been a lot of, um, it's a great grocery store. It's probably the best grocery store you'll ever go to. Um, you should like come here just to go to that grocery store. But there's something, one of the locations has this tiny little parking lot and it's kind of notorious for like people in Priuses, like, you know, arguing and screaming at one another for like the parking spot. And so that's sort of an uh, example of the way the, um, sense is here about like how to be uh progressive is actually quite aggressive <laughs> you know uh and and in ways that are really disavowed so i just see that a lot in um the training space um and the institutional spaces all over the place here i also say i'm, I'm also um, a candidate that you know these oh. our in, our institutions you know, and are are disciplinary. They're conservative, lowercase c. And this is not again. This is not about the political affiliations of of the members of these institutes. I think many of many many of these institutes, um, faculty, you know, fellows would understand themselves to be liberals, right? But the institutional structure of psychoanalysis of being brought speaking about being called in called into the field, right, is actually just your your discipline. That's the way that most educational institutions work, and psychoanalysis is no exception. And so, and I think that um, it, there's a kind of um, disconnect between the stated commitments of so many of our institutes and then the practices that actually happen. And, you know, we could actually think about that disconnect as actually being about the, you know, we could think about, you know, sort of the unconscious, we could think about all, all, all it's like psychoanalysis gives us a language to think about that disconnect as well. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, it, it is a, alive and well, zombie or otherwise. At, at numerous institutes, right? There's, uh, there's no need to, to name any single one. This is the structure of psychoanalytic education and training. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think so, it's uniquely perverse, though. Oh, sorry. Like, I think it's uniquely perverse because, like, I'm a college psych professor, right? When I teach a class, I'm not trying to get my students to come pay me for private tutoring or therapy, right? But that is explicitly the setup in institutes, psychoanalytic institutes, right? That nobody's paid to teach. I mean, basically anywhere, right? The entire thing is done for free. And people are kind of given this, like, given this entitlement to act like they're doing everything just out of the goodness of their hearts for the sake of service to the profession and contribution to the development of knowledge uh, as if they're developing knowledge and not just regurgitating things. But uh, the way that they make their money back is that they recruit supervisees and analysis, right? Basically, I think as of 2014, the majority of analysands were clinicians, right? There's basically nobody in analysis, like full tilt, like four or five times a week analysis, who isn't a shrink as a practical matter. And like, that's just a Ponzi scheme. Like, that's what that is. <laughs> I, I, it's not exactly like that. Like I have... I have patients in analysis who are not in the field, but you're you're right that there's the Ponzi scheme. Yeah, but you're cool, and you have, you have a cooler audience, right? Most of these folks. Like, we all want to be in analysis. It really works. <laughs> but yeah, it's the setup, right? And like you know, yeah, it, yeah, it's it. Yeah, it. I think it really it really has a, a degrading effect on our on our culture yeah. in various ways. That this is how we set it up. I mean, I was being playful, but but I do think that it's important to kind of like to not, at least in, it's not true in my practice and it's not true in the practice of many colleagues. It's not just us seeking treatment of each other because of the requirements, because of our needs. Uh, and I, I know that you were being playful, but I feel like, I, you know, I, I just feel that it's important to say. 
No, and, and I think that there's also like, uh, it's interesting who gets to have the experience you have, right? Where it's like, you know, what, like, where are you in the world? And like, what are you open to? And who are you in front of? And like, how do people get to you? Versus like, you know, they, I, I'm, if you can't find an analyst, I believe that APSA's policy is that they'll assign, your institute will assign you one. If I'm mistaken, you have that. to go to a, an analyst in your institute. And if you already have been in analysis, like I was in analysis for four years before I started training, but you can't, that doesn't count. You have to go to an analyst at their institute. And my analyst was one of the people that interviewed me for the program. And then he requested to be my analyst. And this is all kinds of fucked up. I'm sorry. It's totally fucked up. Yeah. yeah. I think this conversation we're having, like these particulars, they sound salacious to people on the outside and they should because there's so much fucked upness in them that is just like, oh, that's just a fixture. That's just like the way it is. And of course, then there are claims of expertise and claims of sort of con controlling the product and whatever else, right? And purifying it. We we are aware of those conversations. And also the starting point of this was to be like, this is a liberal discourse. So this and that, like these examples that are so easy for us to sort of draw into. And back to your question of like, why is this fascist discourse so easily found in this pr supposedly liberal space? Is that is my is like uh, for us to think about also the type of liberalism, right? What is the sort of disciplinary process of that li liberalism? Like Anne was saying, is there is a disciplinary process to it? But let's face it, that is the that is what liberalism, particularly in the context of the United States, is, right? It is this space of social reproduction within particular parameters that, that has to do with status and class and a particular type of subjective representation, whether that's around queerness or transness or race or any one of these things that is intimately intertwined with power. It's not I don't think it's by chance, and this is why there's an entire chapter of ours in our book dedicated to dialogue initiatives, right? Because those dialogue initiatives have the feel-good nature that liberals want to feel about. We are talking about this. And just by the speech act, there's something happening here. But if we dial back and sort of follow even just our five-minute conversation, is to be like, Actually, this entire system is already rigged from the get-go. And part of what liberalism does is put a nice veneer to it, a nice sheen on it, where we can for momentarily think this is actually a dialogue that has an open-ended nature to it rather than a foreclosed system. And this is where Zionism comes in here, right? Or when we're having conversations around transness, partic particularly trans kids, right? This idea of weight as Anne and Avi teach us and sort of bring us into is like that is sold as a good faith waiting as though we don't already know that there's a built-in endpoint there that liberalism also has space for right it's not like fascists are coming in and being and like having to really argue their way into this palestine issues and trans issues are the place where fascist discourse also joins liberals so fast. We see this on our list here, the quickness with which people who are card-carrying liberals and say, I'm progressive on all things except. The second there's an except, 
I'm sorry. Like, where does the where's the liberalism here? Where is the progressiveness that comes with that? You can claim that all you want, but there's an investment in a particular type of process that to me, if we're also following psychoanalysis, is very unpsychoanalytic, right? You believe in your theories until this point, right? You mobilize all your theories against all of us in very specific ways that are also, I'm sorry if we're talking about the illiberal part of that, that is available to everybody except those who dare not stay within the parameters. So then your liberal notions of humanity, of generosity, of citizenship, all of that gets stripped, right? That's been like my my life in general in the context of the United States and psychoanalysis, but with such piercing clarity in the last seven months of like what you are allowed to even access in terms of your humanity. That is all closed down. And I'm so, it's not just fascists that are doing that. It's by and large liberals, right? Who have no problem. Those contradictions exist in liberalism. And liberals are more dangerous in that respect because are at least with card-carrying fascists, like with the person who says on the Division 39 list, no, on the, on the APSA listserv, I stand with my turf sisters. There's nothing to interpret there. That's mm. clear, right? Like there's no ambivalence, there's no confusion. It's the people who are like, I just want to hear all the opinions. Even mm. that means that kind of like children are dying by suicide or are having their lives scarred as if that's an important, uh, like I I had some, I had a colleague who asked me in print, who said to me, but not all of the kids who say they're gonna kill themselves, kill themselves. Mm. Which is kind of like a really stunning thing. And he started debating with me rates of of child and adolescent suicide as if suicidality that is not completed, he said to me, these are not completed to suicides. I mean, like, but but to your point, Lara, kind of like the fact that an, an argument like this can even appear in print yes. with impunity, as you were saying, with this is not a slip that you gets out from under you and then you catch it and you correct it. This is something that has survived peer review, that has survived editorial kind of like uh, oversight, that has survived various levels of being looked at and still still makes it into print. And this kind of like, this is how liberalism works in the field. Uh, and in my experience at APSA, I was part of the program committee that decided that, that ended up um, giving in to the edict, to the decision to, to ban Lara from participating in the program. Like the, the, problem, the problem in that, committee was not fascism, it was liberalism. And everybody who saw that Lara is doing important work but wanted to wait, maybe Lara could be invited like sometime from now, when? We don't know, we'll have to wait and see. It's a complicated matter. And under this guise of complexity, like kind of like we are stalled and our work is stalled. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is the blackmail that I you all talk about in your book right? Um, by the way, Gender Without Identity, go buy it. <laughs> the best book and Carter's doing the, um, but really- <laughs> We're not earning a penny from it. I want to be clear. Ours. This is a small not-for-profit press. All of us should be showing it. Yes, uh, all of it. But but I think this is part of what you all, I think what's, what really draws me in is that you're 
you're sort of articulating a very particular type of psychic process that is seductive, right? Because what's the other option? But what you bring us to also is like the violence in that option too, because there's a blackmail that's being, that's happening, right? And I just, just to, even we, you know, you all are talking and Gail Rubin's sort of, uh, what's it? Uh, charm, sort of, you know, circle of charm, charm circle of sexuality or whatever, sort of the invitation of all things that are accepted. And, but, and then sort of, but this is precisely, I think, what repair does we always speak of coercion mm -hmm. which is of course what fascists are about but the liberals are about conscription right and so what happens when they're constantly you know offering you know ways to conscript you and it's not necessarily about right how many slices or of pie are there it's just that like the pie is never enough because that's what capitalism is and let's just we can have to reconfigure what we do with the ingredients to even make the pie, right? So to think about like, how can we conscript you all to this sort of representational politics? What could we do? And that, and then when you, when you don't accept right. that invitation, because I'm giving up myself, right? I'm trying to conscript you, but I'm also giving up myself. I'm, I'm, I'm extending my, you know, my male privilege, my, 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 you know, race privilege or whatever, right? But then if you don't, you're an ungrateful savage. You're an ungrateful savage. And then you you see what happened. I mean, that's what white innocence is, where Gloria Record talks about white innocence. The rage, the white rage, right? <laughs> the white male rage that comes out of white women as well. You know, we don't have to locate it within only white men. But mm -hmm. um, I, to me, it seems to be indicative of what actually... And liberalism is tasked with actually making capitalism um, agile. Mm -hmm. But when you don't accept its good graces, this is what happens, right? Um, and I, I want to actually go back since, it, you know, you've invoked the, the blackmail that Avi and I talk about in Gender Without Identity. And maybe um, for those of you who haven't read the book, right, just to say quickly what we mean by that, because it really links to this the problem, one of these problems of enduring problems of liberalism. So the blackmail that Avi and I specifically address in Gender Without Identity is the, is basically, you know, basically the question, what causes transness and queerness? Right. And the the liberal version is transness and queerness are in some sense inborn. There's a core gender identity or an innate sexuality, just as there's an innate straightness or a core heterosexual or cisgender identity. And insofar as queerness and transness are innate or sort of like, again, it's just always in the person who identifies as such it um, that person need not apologize for who they are. The conservative version is transness and queerness are, have been warped that way. There's some sort of trauma or bad influence or the wrong media, you know, internet site have caused you to become queer or trans when really you're straight, really you're cis, right? So, and the blackmail is that in order to secure equal rights, never mind freedom, just equal rights for queer people and trans people, we have to make a version of the born that way argument. Even if we don't believe it, we have to make it because it's the only way to secure social and political rights. Now, that's a problem for a number of reasons. First, it doesn't actually work legally or politically to secure such rights. It's not, it's actually not necessary, but it also hasn't worked. It's also ethically short-sighted because there's nothing wrong with being queer or trans. And to insist on a born the way narrative seems to suggest, oops, they can't help it, poor things. Therefore, we can't blame them. It makes queerness and transness up to be blameworthy. But the liberalism of this approach, I'm gonna go back to liberalism, is 
and I'll have to go off to the side and come back. The liberalism of this approach has to do with, with what's the norm. Because liberalism, it's part of its seduction is it promises formal equality, organized around the norm. But the norm preserves and bakes in hierarchy, hierarchy which allows for actual structural asymmetries. Because how close are you to that norm? This is how hierarchies develop. So the norm we know is actually heterosexuality and cisness. So born that way is only necessary as an argument because queers and queer people and trans people really were not the norm. So we need some other argument to justify our existence, right? So liberalism pulls for a born the way argument. And mm -hmm. in some sense, it's a break from liberalism to say, actually the reason not to discriminate against queer and trans people is because there's nothing wrong with being queer or being trans. And there's no wrong way to be, become queer or become trans, right? This is not about some norm that anyone should be measured by. Right, that's breaking a certain covenant of liberalism, I think. Mm -hmm. Copyright that man. covenant of liberalism. I love that <laughs> from the end to capital. I mean, I'm, I'm just making so much money here today. It's hashtag amazing. Right there, hashtag. Yeah, I got a nickel at least. <laughs> but it does get back, you know, in an interview like. This, again, we're, we're like giving big ups to all these books, but like this is the, one of the first psychoanalytic books I've read in a long time that made me see myself differently. You know, and I and I've also you know heard that from a number of other people who read this, but like it it it's like sort of it's one of these things where it's like wild that this was even necessary because if you follow like pretty uncontroversial and evidentiarily well supported psychoanalytic theories to their conclusion, it's just this, right? Like yeah. if you follow like you know, British object relations theory and attachment theory, like, which are definitely the most empirically well-supported, I would argue, branch of analytic thought. Like, they just say we're made of our identifications to a great extent, right? That there's not a lot of originary stuff in here. Like, we're a baby, and then we have experiences, and we internalize those experiences, and then, you know, play with them and, you know, remix them in various ways, and that's what makes us. So, like, it, it, it's, it's very revealing that psychoanalysts are so averse to this idea that this is something that is like anything but in, that is that is at least in, in some large measure external, right? And it, it it just strikes me that one of these many instances in which you know psychoanalysts are doctrinaire until their theory cuts against basically their their social interests, whether that's in making money or in seeing themselves in a certain way, and then they abandon principle entirely. Like psychoanalytic principle, and then find a way to retroactively rationalize what totally doesn't make any fucking sense from a psychoanalytic perspective in psychoanalytic terms, and then make this hostile demand that you play along with that. It's batshit. <laughs> or you're the aggressor, damn you. Coming here and cursing. <laughs> I know. Fuck. Like, you're disappointed <laughs> in us. We've only said, like, fuck, like, five times. <laughs> I'm shocked. But there's something really striking about the way that you're putting this, Carter, because it reminds me of kind of like the, the, the work that Lara and Stephen have done around psychoanalytic innocence, that, mm -hmm. you know, part of what kind of like is striking about that idea is that its brilliance is that it's been, you've been able to see something and call it out that's been hiding in plain sight. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Much like, you know, once you realize that actually gender is something that we all acquire, that you're not born into even your cisness, then kind of like it fucks up everything. Mm -hmm. um, as it's supposed to. 
You know, this is what good thinking is supposed to do. So, you know, the moment that Lara and Stephen are saying, look like, you know, all of this kind of like presumption of innocence while so much violence is hiding in it, like once it's being called out, there's no going back. And I think that's what is unforgiven and unfor kind of like is seen as unforgivable. Because once you say it, you know, many thinking people are going to be like, oh, whoa, wait a minute, this makes sense. Now, all of a sudden, you're losing your contingent. You're losing your kind of like your, your constituency. Kind of like, and I think that that's another aspect of thinking about psychoanalytic politics and institutional psychoanalysis that we have not necessarily talked about, which, even though I think it's strewn throughout our conversation, which is that kind of like, this is also very much a question of like which ideas gain traction and which ideas do not and what it means for some ideas to kind of like come, come up against others and gain more popularity in ways that frightens structures of power. You know, and I I'm think- actually, I think the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Anne. No, Mary, please, no, Mary, please go ahead. No. No, I, please, Mary, I'd love to hear this. You know, I was thinking about the conference because there, there's this trope in psychoanalysis that you can't find people of color, you know, to teach. You can't, you know, you can't hire people of color to teach these classes. You can't, you know, and I, I, so we have this conference and we welcome and we actually invite and we actually have conversations and we actually make um, an effort to actually see people who have been invisible with in plain sight. And there it is. And there it is. 700 people, early career, BIPOC queer, it can be done. But More than 200 new people, by the way. New people. It can be done. And that's where the energy is. Because I think where I get um, where I get caught is, what I, and I'm really struck by what you're saying about just fighting against yourself. I, I get into this thing of impossibility and foreclosure so quickly. And that's where... That's where the, the edge is all the time. And Carter and I, you know, kind of worked with each other around that edge. And I think that's that we, I've, I learned a lot from Carter um, about our partnership, about how we do this, because there were times where I'm like, nah, you know, they're just assholes, they're asshats, you know, who cares what they say, you know, suck it up, let's keep going. That's not, that's not okay. That's not okay to when somebody's under attack, you know, not to stand up and speak to that and do something with it. So um, where am I going with this? Um, so I think it's, um, it is again, it is about, you know, keep pushing that edge um, and, and, and really, really doing the, it's harder to imagine something new. It's easier to just like sit back and like, you know, let it roll over you. Um, but I think I think we do have to try harder to imagine a future of livability. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that's what we we have to do. I mean, look outside at the climate. I mean, look at what we have to we have to be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I'm thinking, Mary, something that you and Carter did, and this hasn't been spoken about today, is you hacked the format of an mm -hmm. academic conference. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that it, I would say it was one of the most sort of 
exciting conferences I've ever run to because like they're just the way you organize the plenary panels, for example, it, rather than having one person speak, you know, from on high, you mm -hmm. made invitations to people very carefully it, it made invitations, but then each person invited to do a plenary was asked to be in conversation with someone of their choosing. Mm -hmm. And so each plenary panel was itself modeling a particular way to think together because mm -hmm. it's very hard for newness to emerge on our own. We need yeah. help. It's very hard to stay with, you know, sort of like our beautiful struggle, the name of the conference, or to it, pushing up against our own resistances is so hard. It's much easier in company, okay. right? These solidarities. Um, and so I think that you did something with the form of the conference, which was itself a kind of engine to newness emerging, mm -hmm. right? And, and it really, it was, it was so, I was about to say masterful, but, you know, fuck mastery, right? It was so creative. And so ethical, just the structure of the event, that that itself, I think, produced a lot of excitement in the room. And people really, like, it made everyone more game for what was happening to be part of something. And to be also, to be bodies together. This also, after having gone online the last couple of years, I think there's something about coming back into a room in three-dimensionality that also made new things possible. Yeah. Or made things possible differently. That's not the same thing as newness, but made things possible differently. And, and I think, too, that that's sort of the, the promise or maybe the wish of an analytic training institute, psychoanalysis, clinical practice, our own analysis, you know, what happens in the group, what happens when we're together. Uh, but then there are these prohibitions and these foreclosures and these demands that are made what's, you know, possible otherwise into these very straight and narrow kind of like regimented things like this is analysis and it it's this many times and it's with this kind of person and it's with this kind of whatever. And it just, that that's the part that crushes. That's the part where like, you know, I, I am constantly in conversation with myself and then also with, you know, we have these sort of outside, you know, groups, right? Like Lada, you were talking about our text group, you know, with Vanessa. And I have that with so many different groups of people who are in this analytic training environment, because this is how we stay alive. And this is the undercurrent of how we keep this like in, but not of, like there has to be something else happening too. And like, that's, that's the, whether that's resolvable or not, maybe I'm like, my liberalism is showing and I want to repair, you know, because I think there's actually something really important about having something on the outside, you know, uh, particularly given these systems. And I think that's what this conference really was. It was just like, oh, actually, maybe we can do this together and find maybe new outsides, you know, new otherwises um, in groups uh, that we haven't encountered before. I think it's about the simultaneity of process, right? I think there's something to be said about I, I, I'm an abolitionist, I'm an anarchist. I think it's really important. That also colors the way that I think and sort of think through and with psychoanalysis, right? And so when, for me, when I was thinking about what to write or what to say in the presidential speech at the conference, um, I did share that part of that came from me picking my hair, right? And recognizing like, there is a process to this and there is a way in which those curls, for anybody who has curls knows how stubbornly sort of interwoven and there's something so beautiful about that like knot. And- mm -hmm. It takes a process, but it's not a process that you do once and it's done. 
Like mm. I go, I have to go back into the show every time it's that same process. And what's beautiful is what emerges is, is beautiful every time as well. But the process also is part of it. Like the process of being in the water, of picking at every strand, of having that patience, of investing in what emerges from that, right? And that's the metaphor that I'm sort of, uh, sort of borrowing from when we talk about these things also is how, how do you divest from a particular type of legibility? And that goes from all of these wonderful books that these beautiful minds sitting with you that you've all created and your articles and what you've thought through that the centerpiece of all of that is also divesting from legibility, right? From a legibility that's sort of written for us and it's written for us and it's standardized for us and sort of coalesces around a very particular type of subjectivity that's expected of us. And the, the movement away from that, or whether it's Avi, you saying that like these ideas that gain popularity and then that scares structures of power is that 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 for me at least, it's because I'm actively divesting from a legibility that's expected of me. And that's the simultaneity of being. I, I function within these systems. People ask me all the time, like, why are you part of Apps or why are you part of Division 39? Because I do think there's something happening. There's something to be done. There's energy there. And also, I can't feel alive if I'm not constantly in the process, like my hair, of divesting from that endpoint. That is the abolitionist, right? The constant process of emerging. And where does it take us when we're invested in a legibility that coalesces around a particular type of being, right? That could be around cisness, around whiteness, around maleness, or whatever, around a certain class formation, around a certain ability status, then um, that's when it gets scary, right? And, and I do think this is where, when we hear these arguments around identity politics without the analysis of power mm-hmm. being the place of like, oh, this is what's scary here. This is identity politics. That is where I'm like, wait a second, what has constructed the necessity for us to, back to your sort of being blackmailed, what has constructed the necessity for us to coalesce around identities? And how do we even access this without discussing the conditions that created that to begin with, right? And that's where my divestment, this constant divestment comes from. I think this is where the gotcha thing starts too with pretty white people in our field that you were referring to earlier around like, you know, for a long time, there were just like no people of color around. And so the way that we were able to like, you know, try to desegregate and make things more accessible is to say, we need more people of color here. We need to like listen to the voices of these folks. And then that happened more. And the people who got the most control as people of color in our field are quite conservative dispositionally and like have very little in common with me politically or intellectually, for example. And then, you know, they're a you know, given the authority by these institutional bodies to like speak on behalf of all of us in these various ways. And then when we're, we're kind of like, when they're saying something very different than we're saying, there's this move of like, oh, well, but they say like, you wanted us to have, so I guess we need, you know, like that there's a co-optation that happens and it's really hard, I think, for, you know, I uh, people of color, queer people in our field, particularly as like, classes that were formally segregated out for a very long time. Like, 
I think it's pretty hard for people to emerge from that with their principles intact, like by you know staying around for a really long time. Um, and yeah, it's like a lot of I'm thinking about like, you know, probably you and I both in our, well, you probably still go to punk shows. I'm too old and my knee hurts, but like you go to punk shows and they're at the VFW. It doesn't mean that we believe in the VFW. It's like, this is a venue that like will have us. And then if, and then we build something else and we'll leave. Right. But th this thing of like, yeah. <laughs> this demand for fealty to the institution and like how I think so many psychoanalysts are so accustomed to like these authoritarian environments and cults of personality that they can't imagine that we're not like that. Lot I think this is where it comes in. Like there's this assumption that you're like, you know, out here like the ringleader of something and like, <laughs> like you're not like, <laughs> we're right? all dogs. Like, that would be fun too. That was epic. Um, that like, yeah, and then there, there's this paranoia. My brain exploding. It's so I, I just want to jump in on, on and 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 circle back to a few of what you all were saying, in particular, Mary Kim's um, advocacy of edging, um, <laughs> because you know you were saying that you you know you and Carter and this had come through I think when you know. Um, Ali and Anne were saying about how they have their own process about constantly sort of self-interrogating. And then you and Carter thinking about organizing this event. And, you know, I think it's, there's an assumption like, oh, just because folks are POCs, somehow they're liminal, rather than to the contrary, you know, we're saturated through the, with hegemonic discourses and you're trying to push this edge, right? You're edging, right? This whole time. And this, this sort of, people think that we're authoritarian when precisely this is an anti-authoritarian methodology. And what you're trying to do is think at these edges and push the edging and mm -hmm. see what comes out of those energies of constantly pushing towards, even though edging, you know, is, you know, coming is anti antithetical to edging. The edging. What was that? What was that? Say edging again. Say edging seven more times. Back. Yes. The, the, end, the end point. The end point of this conference was really, really a great, you know, petit mot, right? It was a really great uh, uh, um, uh, sort of thing that came out of it, right? So this sort of like thinking beyond and thinking on the edge and pushing yourself and being self-critical is like precisely opposite of this fucking ridiculous authoritarian mm -hmm. uh, critique. It's mm -hmm. actually very much. Okay, may, I, may I add to that? May I add to that? The other thing that's so radically not and not authoritative or authoritarian is that um, this conference was energized by love mm -hmm. and care. And anytime um, Carter and I needed something, I mean, Avgi, you were just so there. Okay, so, and it was loving. And Laura leads with love. I mean, that's why she, that's why she's here. And that's why she's so troubling in a certain way. That's why she's so troubling, I think. Because there is um, a, um, you can, you, your legibility is that you're working from value. Your, what your values you're working from your truth and and i think that's like pr 
pretty radical. Okay. <laughs> Beautifully put. And I'm mindful of the time. I think some of you might yeah. have to leave in a minute. Is there anything anyone wanted to say before we wrap up? Or did you want to end with that statement? We can end with that. I, I, there's something I would love to say about Carter. Um, <laughs> um, like talking about, about love and also talking another word that I think is in our conversation, but hasn't come up, the labor, the, the psychic labor and the psychic depletion that engaging in this project projects has required. Carter, I, you gave this talk, um, this introduction, kind of like this really kind of like powerful uh, response to some of the racism in uh, on the on the on the Division Thirty Nine listserv, and you started listing all the ways in which our activism is being targeted and the exhaustion of that and the labor of that. And I am not somebody who cries easily. I, I had, it was just also on the heels of the drama with um, APSA, but I found myself tearing up in a way that made my muscles relax in a way that I had not realized. I had even been holding them together, just like I did when you sent us your email last week. And I, I wanted to say that that's a different form of care that that is part of the, the emotional glue that keeps this together because this is not just about ideas and solidarities. It's also about a certain kind of um, emotional labor, which I was very grateful for the to the conference for, not just for the format and the ideas and the inclusivity, and but also for the, the affect that kept it together. So much love to you. Yeah, and that's a really good point, too. This field is not just about ideas and theoretical arguments. It's about not only the next generation's well-being coming up, but the analysis, right? Yes. And our focus on them. Mm -hmm. That's pretty important to centralize because that seems to be lost a lot in sort of arguments at times. I love you all. <laughs> love you. Love you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Vanessa. Yes, thank you for hosting and organizing. Talk about making a space, Vanessa. We right. so appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thank and you. we'll have to do it again. It's a party. <laughs> it's fun to be unruly together. So thank you. <laughs> I like to keep an unruly space here. <laughs> Safe travels, right, everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was beautiful yeah. to see you all. So much luck. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion about the state of psychoanalysis with Mary Kim Brewster, Carter Carter, Molly Merson, Anne Pellegrini, Avi Sakatapulu, Lada Shiha, and Stephen Shiha. For more about the conference we were referring to, organized by Drs. Mary Kim Brewster and Carter Carter, check out episode 227 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast, Our Beautiful Struggle, Destruction, Creation, and Psychoanalysis. For more about Avi Sakatapulu and Anne Pellegrini's book on gender without identity, check out episode 247. 
episode 229, you can hear Carter Carter's paper, All the Rage, the Whiteness of Psychoanalysis and What It Cannot Dare to See. Episode 62 of Rendering Unconscious is Molly Merson discussing interrogating whiteness. For more from Lada Shiha, check out episode 43 of Rendering Unconscious as well as 143 and in episode 185, Drs. Lada and Stephen Shiha present their book on Palestine, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation. And finally, episode 200 of Rendering Unconscious was a special celebratory episode where Dr. Lada Shiha interviewed me about the podcast. And now the song, Analyzing Cyborgs, from the album Disciplined by Order, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at his bandcamp, petemurphy.bandcamp.com. It's also available streaming at Spotify and other streaming services. Just search for Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. For the weird. Unaccountable. We have already become cyborgs. Play with medium. And after this, Freud advises, we move towards the world at large. We become, we encompass everyone. Hatred is not only towards the other, with a capital O, meaning cyborgs, cyborgs. cut-ups alone, analyzing cyborgs, cut-ups alone. Cyborgs, cut-ups alone, analyzing cyborgs, cut-ups alone, analyzing cyborgs, cut-ups alone, analyzing cyborgs. 